0: who would you share the gospel with? In our world today, they would say, oh, you don't need to share it with good, decent Jewish people who believe in God, but they don't believe in Christ and they haven't obeyed his baptism. But that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2, of Peter, a Jewish man, Christ, Jesus being Jewish as well. And we see him preaching the gospel To those who who believed in God, who needed and who were waiting for the gospel, needed to know how God was going to provide a way of salvation for His people, those who were faithful to Him to be resurrected. We go throughout the book of Acts, and we'll come to Acts chapter eight. We see a man riding in a chariot, the Ethiopian eunuch reading Scripture. Everybody, you read in Acts already believed God up to chapter eight, but they didn't know Christ and didn't know the gospel. And yet Philip is told by the Holy Spirit to go join and teach the gospel to him. He's already reading his Bible, but he did not know the truth. And so he, Philip, shares the gospel with the Ethiopian unit from Isaiah 53, which we looked at some of the scriptures we want to share with others when we're sharing the gospel. And we, we, you keep going through scripture and you come to Acts chapter 10, and there's a man who prays to God, and God hears his prayers, and he's very generous, and he gives all... He's a God-fearer. He's not Jewish. Why does he need to hear the gospel? He's not saved. And the scriptures say, no, he's not saved. He has not been yet baptized and washed in the blood of Christ. And he and his family hear the gospel and they obey it. And we might know a lot of people today who are generally nice people. They're, they believe in God and they pray and they give to those who are in need. But That doesn't mean they're saved. We're not saved by our works and our good deeds. We say, by the gospel. And so it needs to be preached. When we ask the question, saved or not, we might have people in our family, neighbors, those around us that we just think, well, if they haven't figured it out already. I mean, they have the Bible, and they say they believe, and they got the book. Maybe I just leave them alone. There are others in the book of Acts. There are those in Acts chapter 17 who don't believe in God, who are pagan. Paul preaches to them. He tells them of the one true God, tells them of Christ, and many of them come to believe as well. Tonight, I think, is a big question for us when it comes to evangelism, not to hinder ourselves from who we share the gospel with. We've also noted in the past weeks, John chapter 4, where Jesus teaches the woman at the well who's had multiple husbands. Many people today would say, well, she's been married five times. She's with a man who is not her husband. Certainly, she wouldn't believe and obey and follow Christ, but that's who Jesus teaches the gospel to. I think these are important things for us to be reminded of, and so what I look at tonight is whether one is saved or not, and what determines whether they're saved, and I think this is a hard subject in many ways, because at the end, I'm going to address churches that are around us, and for many people, they make a very staunch view on it on either side, And I hope that we're just going to listen to what the scriptures have to say on the matter tonight. Um, Nobody wants to get down on their mother's church or their father's church or grandma's church or anything else or their best friend's church. But I think it's important that what we stand for is the church that Christ built and the one that he bought with his blood. That's what we want to be a part of. And when we look at other churches around us, and they appear to be doing things that are made by men, invented by men, traditions of men, those things are taking away from the true church that Christ built and organized. And so we want to persuade them to come to Christ and to even repent. So tonight we look at um, this. We we ask the question, do you know uh, who needs to hear the gospel? Who is it that needs to hear it? I mean, we could reason with every person we come across. Well, this person, again, they pray a lot. They read their Bible. Certainly, I don't need to tell them anything. And this person over here, well, they don't believe, and they live a wild life. Certainly, they wouldn't listen. And that's usually the way it goes. It's this person's good enough. I don't need to share it with them. They'll figure it out on their own. This person, no, they're living such a wicked, deprived life. I can't even share it with them because they wouldn't believe it. Notice the prejudice there, the things that go on. And both of those are already, we've talked about and alluded to some scriptures tonight that refute that. Here's what we see about whether someone is saved or not, and is this. We have people today who say, okay, I'm a good person. Good people go to heaven. Therefore, I'm going to heaven. I don't really need Jesus. That's the implication. That's the idea. I know I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to come back to this again. But this is what we read in scripture. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, we read, and the apostles say, and there's salvation, and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What convinces me of that is who else has been crucified, has been buried, and resurrected from the dead. There's nobody else who can offer that eternal life through through resurrection or for resurrection than Jesus Christ. That's why he is the only way. And so while we have neighbors and friends and those around us in our family, who generally are kind and nice people, and they may be generous for whatever reason that is. What reason is it? Is it guilt? Is it shame? Is it for their own ego because it makes them feel better? Notice those all sound selfish. Is it because of their own selves? It's hard to think of, find somebody who would be doing good today that didn't have some other kind of motive behind it. When I look at selflessness and selfless acts, I find it in Christ. And He is the only way. So as we think about those around us who might be kind and nice, they're not saved and cannot be saved without Jesus Christ. That statement alone is humbling. We think about verses like this, and we've hopefully heard this our whole life, John fourteen, verse 6, where Jesus said to His disciples in the night of His betrayal, He says to them and emphasizes, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, but no one comes to the Father except through Me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. For now you do know him and have seen him. You can see the truth and you can know the only way to the Father is through me. I'm the only representative of him. That's what Jesus says, that he is the Christ. He says, says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You cannot have eternal life except through Jesus Christ and his resurrection. You cannot have truth except through him to perceive and understand reality. He says, "I am the only way." And that is true. But today, to say this, just these these things right here in the public square to say them, to make the statement even on social media, oh, well, it's offensive. This is what we believe. These are those who need to hear the gospel. This is how we know who's saved and who's not and who needs to hear the truth. We're going to get a little bit more specific in a moment. Christ saves, not kindness. Your own kind works. Being nice to people will not save you because you have sins. Everybody in this world has some kind of moral code. And you can ask them, no matter how small that code is when they whittle it all down, have you ever broken your own moral code? Yes. never found a person who denied that. Maybe there is somebody out there who's that haughty or arrogant to make such a claim. But when we stand before God, we're all guilty. We need a Savior. When we stand before God, there's not one of us who can resurrect our own bodies. Christ can. He's the only way, the only one who's been able to do that. He is God come in the flesh, He's the only one who can save. It makes sense, And again, that's why I emphasize the resurrection so much because it answers a lot of these questions a lot easier. I don't have to get into the fine details of things. I can point out the gospel. Let's think a little bit further about this. Here's that false teaching. And I would say that of the two top false teachings that I perceive in the world, here's the one that continues to stand up to me, stand out to me, and that is that many believe the false teaching. The good people go to heaven. I'm a good person, therefore I'm going to heaven, and I don't need God, Christ, the Bible, or anybody else. I don't need church. I don't need any of that. That's the the statement today. But when we find those who are humble enough, who are seeking, who are saying, I want to follow God, and I love Jesus, and I want to be a part of His body and His church that I read about in the Scriptures, that makes a huge difference. Again, from the beginning here, we don't want to make any judgments about those who, whether someone will accept the gospel or not. What we need to do is let them hear it, present it to them. So I think tonight is what we're thinking about in all these studies we've been having on evangelism. Who do you think of? Who is it that you're in contact with that you can share the truth with? Who is it that you know that believes something like this, that you could challenge them and Use those questions we talked about in the very beginning. Why do you say that you're good? Why do you say that you're going to heaven? That you have eternal life? Why do you say that? How can you say that when you're guilty like the rest of us? There's a lot to think about there. I want to share some other scriptures with you that tell us about who's saved and who's not. And we're not making this judgment. This is God's word. This is God's judgment. This is what we read. There's a scripture in Second Thessalonians chapter one verse six through nine. If you haven't read this before, look at Second Thessalonians chapter one verse six through nine. It makes it very clear it says those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel, that God, the vengeance of Christ, will be against them. Wait a minute, they don't know God. Well again, we've talked about this Acts chapter 17 that God no longer overlooks. That's what Paul says. He no longer looks agnosticism. He no longer looks, overlooks ignorance of who God is. In fact, in Acts 17, Paul says in 26 27 that God is not far from any one of us. Now, again, we can make excuses and say, well, God's not far from any one of us so people can find their way on their own. Well, that kind of defeats the purpose of Paul preaching that in a sermon in Athens in the first place. So, yes, God's not far from any one of, of you. And here's the gospel. Here's the truth. Here's Jesus. Come to him. If I could change that citation up there in Acts chapter 17, I would change it to 22 to 31. That whole sermon is a wonderful sermon, I think more applicable today than in other times. I want you to look at this as well. Peter says in 1 Peter 4 and verse 17, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It, wait a minute. Judgment is coming and it begins with the church. He says, For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Notice here again, that those who do not obey the gospel are not saved. You've got to obey the gospel. Romans 1 and verse 16 says, The power of God unto salvation is the gospel. It is the message of Jesus 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says we are saved. We stand by the gospel, which is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how do you obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Well, you die of your sins, you're buried in water, and you rise up in the newness of life. We see that throughout Scripture. And so that's a big point right here, especially in the application toward churches. Are there churches today that tell people, well, you can just believe? Even the demons believe. What needs to happen from your faith? Well, a true faith is going to produce works. What kind of works? What's going to take a change to where you're baptized and you start a new life? So obeying the gospel. Here's another thing I see that stands out clearly right here. Those who obey the gospel are in the household of God. They're in the church. Those who don't obey the gospel are not. And so all because someone's a part of a certain denomination, and whether it might be a denomination related or connected with somebody in our family, I'm sorry to say, but if they're not teaching you to obey the gospel the way it is, That can't be the church of Christ. It can't be. It's a fraud. It's a man-made thing. It's it's a hoax. And I'm not saying that people in it are not sincere or that they're nice and they're kind, but those are the ones that we want to share the gospel with. People like Cornelius, an Ethiopian eunuch, who knew a lot, but they didn't know all of it. You can go through the book of Acts and again, look at numerous people, good people, who needed to hear the truth. And so something stands out to me here again. The time of judgment, it begins at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what is the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? Well, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, we already know they're not saved. And so churches need to get that right, especially in connection with baptism. It's Jesus who says that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. 1 Peter 3, 21, Peter says baptism, which corresponds to this. Talk about Noah coming through the flood, rescuing his family as an image of baptism. He says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. How can baptism save you? You're just getting in water. Well, he explains that. It's not the removal of dirt from the body, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. When are you really calling on God? When are you really praying for God for a good conscience and forgiveness of sins? Well, you do it through baptism. Acts 22 and verse 16 says that. Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's when we do it. So he says here, it's not a removal of dirt from the body, but it's an appeal to God for good conscience. And where's the power of it? Well, the power of the baptism is in this. Christ commanded it. There's the power. It's the power's in the Word. Jesus commanded baptism. And secondly... It's because it imitates what Jesus did to give us salvation. He rose from the dead. That gives the power to be born again. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. And we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here it is repeated that we come in contact with Christ and His body and His death. We unite in His death. Romans 6 and verses 3 through 5 tells us that through baptism. It's an amazing and wonderful thing. And I think it's a shame upon churches that do not teach this. I'm fearful for them, and I want to I shake them up. I want them to think. But you know what the Bible says. And any opportunity I get to talk to somebody, and, I, and, I, and they mention the gospel, and they say, yes, I believe in God, and I believe in Christ, that's wonderful. But it, at the same time, the demons believed in God, and they would confess that Jesus was the Son of God. We read about that in the Bible. That alone... Is not necess- essential for salvation. In fact, we're going to see in a moment a passage in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everybody who calls on me and calls me Lord will be saved. Even those who did mighty works in my name will not be saved. And while those who innately know what is good and do it, um, are they saved? I need to rephrase that question right there. Are they saved? Well, again, Romans tells us that people know right from wrong. And that, like I was saying before, no matter how small their moral list is, everybody has broken the law, have broken God's law. And we're hypocrites and arrogant to say otherwise. We need a Savior. The more that we look at this world and the things that are going on, we realize that. Here's that passage, an allusion to it I made to is Matthew 7, verse 21 to 22. where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. He says, even though they say, look, didn't we do mighty works in your name? And, And he says, then go away from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. So we know this, that those who are living in a sinful life, whether they claim to be a Christian or not, whether they claim to call on God and Jesus or not, If they live in lawlessness, they are lost. They're not saved. And that might be those around us in in the church. And if we see that, we have a responsibility to speak up. As Paul says to the churches in Galatia, he tells them, because he has to warn them, and he doesn't just do it to Galatia, he does it in 1 Corinthians, and he does it to Timothy as he's in Ephesus, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He gives a list of sins, he says, of people who are practicing these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what does Paul say? Let's look at Galatians 5, 19-21. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality. The Greek word porneia, means fornication, it means extramarital sex. Uh, impurity would be any other kind of sexual um, stimulation sensuality, which would be lewdness, lewd dress, lewd speaking, sexual sins, idolatry, the worship of idols, sorcery. The Greek word for sorcery here is pharmakeia. Pharmakeia, the taking of hallucinogens, taking of drugs, enmity, strife, those who just stir things up, jealousy, fits of anger and wrath. You have those even coming in within churches That would just want to divide things and cause problems. So there's rivalries. And he says, these are works of the flesh. Dissensions and divisions and envy and drunkenness. Drunkenness. I think it's strange how many people can justify um, what they drink and they call it moderate drinking. Well, I just had two glasses of wine and come to find out it's four or five drinks. Their mind's not in the right place and the Bible tells them that this is drunkenness. Then the word here says orgies. In Greek, it literally means wild parties, parties of debauchery and wine. And then it says things like these. I mean, you could probably think of a number of things that are like these. And and this is what Paul says, I warn you. And this is what we do as Christians. It's not about us going around saying, oh, your people are going to hell as though we don't have our own sins. It's it's rather, Christ saved me. And if you don't turn to him, I'm warning you, you're going to be lost as well. That's what we're pleading with. That's not a condemning, arrogant, hypocritical stance, and it shouldn't be. I know there's some people out there that do that. He says, i warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's God speaking. That's the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul. These people will not be saved who do these things. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and there's more to that list. You're not supposed to read that passage because it lists homosexuals in it and effeminate men. Things like that. The Bible also warns against that those who practice such things are condemned and will not enter the kingdom of God. Well, how can they enter the kingdom of God unless they're resurrected? And how can they be resurrected unless they've obeyed the gospel of Christ? And they're faithful to Jesus and they're faithful to God. Well, they can't be. Again, the pagan reasoning is is that, well, I don't really need this body good people go to heaven i'm a good person my spirit's just going to go up there and float in some magical ether and that's not the idea that's not reality it's not the truth there's no way to have eternal life without jesus christ to be faithful to him and obedient to him and we see this as well someone might say well i don't do all those kind of things i believe in jesus and i'm in the church and i've been baptized but are you compassionate do you do good for others I think that would be challenging. That's, That's a challenge for this whole congregation, isn't it? Look here in Matthew 25. And you look right here, and there's a reason why these words of Jesus are here near the end of his life, and it is to compel his disciples to not forget to be doing these good things. When Jesus talks to the seven churches of Asia, and he talks to them, he talks about their lack of compassion as well. Yeah, you stand up against false teachers, and you stand for truth. But do you care for others? Listen to what Jesus says here. He says, then the righteous will answer him, and this is talking about the judgment day and Christ being there and judging, separating the sheep and the goats. And here the righteous will say to him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? Because that's what he said. He said, you saw me when I was in need and you fed me and took care of me or thirsty and give you a drink. And when do we see you a stranger or welcome you or naked and clothed you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Those are important things for us to be doing. And it's a matter of judgment day, whether you're doing those things, whether you're taking care of those who are hungry or thirsty or have no clothing or wandering around and have nowhere to go and have no home. Those who are sick or in prison, that it's a matter, it's a good thing to visit them. Those are things that we, many Christians, we wonder about. Am I doing enough? And the scripture says here, and the king will answer them truly, I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As you did it to the least, you did it to me. Very compelling that we take those passages and examine ourselves. Other things that might stand out to us in regards to our faithfulness, not just our moral living, but the saved are faithful unto death. You don't live most of your life and say, well, there's a part of my life when I live however I felt like until the end. But, you know, at the beginning of my life, I was faithful to God. That's not the way it works. We read that in Ezekiel. The faithful have a living faith with works. My faith should produce works. I believe in Christ. If it's a living faith, I'm going to do good things. We, we just saw that in Jesus in Matthew 25. We see this, that the disciples, those who are saved, they abide in God's Word. They live in it. They make sure that they're with the saints. They assemble together. They're a part of the church. They want to be a part of the church that Christ established and bought and built with His own blood. They want to be a part of the church in the Bible. There's, there's not many churches today that are striving for that. And they believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. It's an important thing. In 1 Corinthians 15 you get a warning there that those who lack belief in that live immoral lives often because they don't really understand what Jesus has accomplished and what he has done. We can add more to that list, but I'm not trying to make any um, detailed exhaustive list tonight, but I'm actually trying to make it simple. That if you don't have Christ and you haven't obeyed the gospel, it seems very clear that you're in the wrong place. And if you don't remain faithful, that's what we've been looking at. I know this is a controversial statement right here. But I think the Baptists can take it. They're the biggest group of believers in the United States, besides Catholics. Um, And and I've been having a class with the teenagers. We've been looking at different churches. And usually we get to the Baptists, and they say a lot of things that are right, and we agree with, and say, okay, that's in the Bible. But are imperfect, perfect churches saved? Or are we an imperfect congregation? Yeah. We start to wonder now, but which church now is the church of Christ and is a part of the church of Jesus Christ that's in the Bible? And which one is it? Or should we be making that judgment? Well, we've seen tonight we can make that judgment to some extent. If the church is teaching another gospel, they're not a part of that. We can make it very clear. And so as we look at these different churches that are around us, are they teaching the gospel? Are they teaching the death and resurrection of Christ, that you need to die to your sins and be buried in baptism and rise up in the newness of life. Are they teaching these things? And when we think about that, we begin to see, well, that, who needs to hear the truth? I like what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says, I, I want to come to you, he says there, to the church in Rome, so I can uh, preach to you. The word for preach there is the Greek word, which means to evangelize. He says, I want to come and evangelize to you. But we're already a church. We already believe in Jesus. Here we are in Rome as a, as a church. But my point is, is evangelism starts here and it goes throughout the whole world. We need evangelism in our own congregations. We need people hearing the truth and hearing the gospel. And there may be people that we sit next to and we don't often think about. Do they know the truth? Maybe some things that they say might signal to us that I can have a Bible study with that person and I, I might need to study and talk to them some more. If we look at this, you know, we could just go along and say and classify, well, not any church is perfect, so that we'll let God judge that. Again, there are judgments of God that are written in Scripture, and it's not for us. We're not making the judgment upon appearance. Remember Jesus said in John 7, verse 24, he says, judge not by appearance, but Jesus did say this, judge by righteous judgment. Judge by righteous judgment, John 7, verse 24. So there are some things that we can Notice. One thing I'm going to notice, if they're not teaching the gospel, that's a big indicator indicator to me that they're not the church of Christ. Another thing that's a big indication is that they're not trying to be. They just want to be a man's denomination. Some guy instituted this. His name right here is on the building. We're going to go along with what he taught in tradition. In the churches of Christ, we need to have this conviction right here. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 19, He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus said he'd build his church. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, we see Paul preaching and teaching elders in the church. And he says to them, you shepherd over the flock that Jesus has bought, God has bought with his own blood. Burn to Jesus. Jesus has bought the church with his own blood. Can't think of anything that's more costly than the blood of Jesus and the value of what we are and what we mean to God because we strive and we are the church because we have obeyed the gospel and we continue to be faithful. Those are huge indicators of whether we're saved or not. And that's, that's about as simple as it gets. Have you obeyed the gospel? Yes. Are you faithful to God? Yes. Then we know that we're saved. First John tells us, as long as we walk in the light, the blood of Christ washes, us, washes away all of our sins. That's the extent of God's grace. We step outside of the light and we're lost. But Jesus built and bought the church, his church. You also see this. It's not about us voting or saying who's in the church and who's not. The Lord adds to the church. and But who does he add? He adds those who believe and repent and are baptized and are faithful and thus saved by God the Bible shows that very, very clearly in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 verse 47, it says the Lord adds to them, adds to the church. God does the adding. Thirdly, the church began and continued. What do they continue? They continued in doctrine and teaching. So again, it's about faithfulness. I can tell who's saved and who's not saved. Not that I can judge everybody, but I can look for those around me. I can... My wife can look at me and I can look at her and as a brethren in congregation, we can look at one another and those in our family and our neighbors and our coworkers. We can see who has obeyed the gospel or we can ask them about it. And then we can also find out who is faithful or not. Those are great questions. That opens up the door to sharing the truth. But the church began and continued in teaching that is in doctrine. They continued in fellowship with one another. They spent time together. They shared their lives together. And that word fellowship implies that they were sharing their possessions as well. Those who were in need were taken care of. You can't escape that in Acts chapter 2 anyways, or in Acts chapter 4. The church from the very beginning was taking care of those who were in need. Then it says the breaking of bread. Notice the article the there, the breaking of bread. In the Bible, you have breaking of bread, a common meal. Then you had the breaking of the bread, which is the Lord's Supper. So the church continued in participating in the Lord's Supper. In the teenage class this morning, we were looking through these different churches and what they believed. A lot of people don't know this, but the Salvation Army is a church. We were reading what they said about their beliefs. They say, We do not practice sacraments. And what they meant is we don't practice baptism, and we don't practice the Lord's Supper. That's kind of a strange thing for a group who says that they're a church to be doing. Especially when we read about the church that Christ established from the very beginning, Acts chapter 2 who were doing, who were breaking bread, the breaking of bread in the Lord's Supper. And prayer, they continued in prayer as well, together. That's a picture of what the church looks like. We begin to look for where is that church today, and we can look at those things, we can look at those who are faithful, we can look at those who obey the gospel. And we can get into more details tonight as far as, the, as, far as uh, worship. But I want to make a few examples of um, some details we see in the Bible as far as erring churches and false teachers. Few brief points and then i'm gonna leave it for you as we make and we start to understand this um i, I would like to comment a little bit further about the baptists um just to kind of give some clarity i have a friend in jacksonville who's a very knowledgeable man he has a phd in bible he grew up in a baptist church he said in that baptist church that they used no instruments they only had congregational singing that's all they knew he said, "In that church, they believed baptisms when you became a Christian. They took the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, and they met him on the first day of the week." He said, "Everything about it resembled the Church of Christ. We were the Church of Christ. We didn't know it. Our signs and Baptists. What do you do in a situation like that? How do you understand that? Of course, later he realized, you know, oh, there's churches like this all over the place. We're standing for the truth, and he now is a faithful member in the Church of Christ." Um, and those in, within our fellowship. But there are scenarios, but those that's very rare. That's, maybe, that's very clearly the exception. So when I, I'm looking at these different churches, there are things that give us an indication of whether the church is being led by false teachers. Galatians 1, 8 through 9, it says, anybody takes the gospel and they pervert it and they change it, they are anathema. They're condemned to the greatest extent. That's what Paul says. That's not me saying these things. I think about Revelation 2 through 7 where five of the seven churches are commanded to repent or they would be lost. I would say those are churches of Christ and they're sinning and they're doing wrong and Christ is saying, repent. So this isn't just, well, we're right and they're wrong. It's more of, we all need to get back to the Bible and make sure that we're following the truth. And then I think about this, 1 Corinthians, and I'll put chapter 11, verse 29 and 30 because I want to note this. There are some who changed the Lord's Supper and worship and made it very divisive. And so someone might say, well, if I do worship different than this church, if I'm not worshiping like it says in the Bible, you know, we're, we're changing some things. Does that necessarily mean, I mean, if they're sincere, does that mean that they're lost? Again, God's the judge, but I do have this judgment from God that I can read about in the Bible. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29-30, where Paul says, some of you are lost, you're asleep, and you have died because you have altered and you're no longer thinking about Christ and the Lord's Supper. You're not thinking about where you're supposed to be. Your mind's not in the right place. You've d- divided and broke up the church. And what we recognize about this church at Corinth is that they were baptized, but they were also profaning the assembly. They weren't worshiping the way they were supposed to. They were living immorally. People were living in sexual immorality in that church. And they were also abandoning their faith in the resurrection. So, again, this is a call for churches to repent. You really can't separate that from evangelism. It's very much needed today. The churches constantly be reminded as though we're, we're one of those whom Christ is calling to repent in the book of Revelation. Ultimately, God will identify the Aryan churches, determine who is saved. But I know this. I can read about the Church of Christ in the Bible. I can see where the real church is, the one that Christ bought with His blood, that He built, and I can be a part of it. And I would plead with everybody to do the same, and I would warn them, don't be a part of anything else. And I'm safe in doing that. I don't have to go any further than that. I can just stick with the Scriptures and with God's Word and doing that. Almost all of those from whom I've studied, and this is a personal observation as we're concluding this series Those that I have studied with who have obeyed the gospel, and there may be some in your your wondering, you know, who should I focus on? I'd say about 90% of people I've studied with who are not a part of a church. They were disconnected. We've talked about that. There are 180 million people in the United States who are disconnected from a church, which makes the United States the third largest mission field in the world. And yet as those, when you teach them the gospel, they're more likely to join the church. Those who have been disconnected, they, maybe they were in a church and no longer were, or they didn't grow up in a church, those are the ones that you, just, you need to talk to them. You need to share the truth with them. I encourage you to do that. I think you'll see great fruit in it. And it's an exciting, wonderful thing to study with somebody and them to say, when can I be baptized? If you haven't experienced that, I hope that you do. To see someone say, I want to be baptized. One of my favorite scriptures to conclude in a Bible study is Acts 22 and 16. I've already shared part of it with you tonight. But the beginning of it is amazing because it's Ananias saying to Paul, why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? When someone says, when can I be baptized? Kara's not here tonight, but that's exactly what she asked me one day. She said, when can I be baptized? I sent back to her Acts twenty two sixteen, 16. And she's like, okay. I'm like, well, did you read it? Because it says, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I love that scripture. Amen. I think another thing to think about here, I think it's a great encouragement as we conclude tonight, last scripture, Acts eighteen five through 6. And my whole point is, let's not be prejudiced. Let's not determine ahead of time and judge people and say, well, they they won't receive the gospel. Look at how they're living. Oh, they already believe in God and they got a Bible. They're going to some other church. I don't need to tell them. I don't need to help them. I don't need to study with them. Or maybe they have nothing to offer to me. That kind of thinking is wrong. I like Acts 18. I see Paul here coming from Athens into Corinth, and he's preaching the gospel. And I read this. This is when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, they're up north in Philippi and Berea, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Well, why do they need to hear it? Well, they do, and he didn't hold back. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he preaches to the Jews, and he preaches to the Gentiles. He preaches to everybody. Paul went around to synagogues preaching the gospel, and you might think, Why the synagogues? They already believe in God and they're already looking for Christ. Let them figure it out on their own. But that wasn't his thinking. I hope tonight we think about that. We can see in the scriptures who's saved and who's not. We can see that everybody needs to hear the gospel and they need to study. I thank God that we're here tonight to be able to do that. Share the truth with one another and to continue to do that. Do you know that you're saved? You can say tonight, and I hope that you can say with confidence, Okay, I've obeyed the gospel. I believed and I confessed that Jesus rose from the dead. I repented of my sins. I was buried in baptism. I rose in the newness of life, and I'm still living a faithful life in the faith that God and the blood of Christ washes away my sins. And I continue to confess my sins to God. And you can confidently say, yes, I'm saved, I'm a Christian. But tonight, if you have any contradiction with anything, any part of that, you need to pray about it and think about it and consider, do I know that I'm saved? A lot of people that go around today and say, I don't know if I'm saved. I hope I am. I hope I go to heaven. We shouldn't be talking like that. We should be talking that by the grace of God, I'm saved. Yeah, I stumble sometimes, but I'm faithful, and I will never give up my faith, and I've been baptized in Christ, and I'm living a faithful life. I have every confidence that I'm saved. Tonight, if you haven't obeyed the gospel, we encourage you to do that. If you're lacking Uh, and your confidence to salvation. We want to pray with you and encourage you. If you have struggles tonight, things you're going through, hardships, we want to pray with you as well. encourage you to come right now as we sing together.